the FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science with me, Clive Cookson. This week's edition will have a health focus. We'll be talking about diseases from AIDS to flu. Our regular studio guest, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of Britain's Science Council, is with us, I'm happy to say. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. Nice to be here again. And my colleague Andrew Jack is with us too. Hello, Andrew. Hello there. Last week, Andrew was away in Washington for the annual meeting of the Global Health Council. And so was our special guest today, Peter Piot. Peter is one of the world's foremost virologists and public health experts. For a long time, he ran UNAIDS. He's currently director of Imperial College's new Global Health Institute. And in September, he becomes director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Welcome to you, Peter. Hello, Guy. So, how did you find the Washington meeting? Well, what I found interesting is that we had discussions that were uh, heavily determined by, of course, the U.S. domestic issues, the Obama's Global Health Initiative, which is uh, broadening uh, what Bush had initiated with uh, fighting AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. Secondly, there was a lot of discussion on what I call making the money work in these times of uh, um, resource constraints. Can we do better with the money that's there? And, and the answer is yes. Uh, of course, there, there's a lot of efficiency gains that we can make. And thirdly, there's a whole new agenda emerging in terms of global health. We still have a, a hugely unfinished agenda. AIDS is still killing uh, 2 million people a year, for example. Um, there are 300,000 women who, who die while giving birth. But uh, there's also diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, mental health, uh, which are, at the moment, the major causes of mortality and morbidity in the world. And these have not been addressed traditionally by the global health community. I don't know what you think, Peter, but I, I get the impression still that there's, um, <clears throat> while at the high level there's a lot more discussion now about making the money work, as you, as you put it, still a lot of the lobbying and the criticism and the concern is much more focused on how to keep the money flowing. I mean, I wonder if we need a lot more reflection by the NGOs as well as by agencies and donors into really, as you say, going more into the detail about being more efficient, particularly now the the volumes going into health and development have gone up so largely in the last few years. Yeah, I agree, Andrew. Um, crisis or no crisis, we need to do a better job in terms of showing results. Public health in general is not known for very efficient management practices. So we need to instill some sound management to start with in in what we're doing. Also, perhaps, being more strategic where we spend the money. Uh, For example, in in my field in AIDS, a lot of money is spent on general awareness campaigns, which, uh, you know, my grandmother doesn't need that. It's it's those who who are at risk uh, we need to to reach. And they are not uh, reached. So there is... Uh, too much of some things and too little of others. But it's a whole culture of evaluation. is starting to emerge, and that's helped, for example, by the Global Fund to Fight HTB Malaria, which is putting a lot of emphasis on results. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic that it's coming, but it's still driven in the U.S. by whatever U.S. Congress set as uh, objectives and targets. It's very, a very different system than we have here in Europe. How much difference is the new philanthropic money, the Gates money in particular making, are they raising not only money but raising management standards? 
Well, first of all, the Gates Foundation has completely changed the landscape. I mean, when you think in terms of uh, health, I think it's about uh, $1.5 billion, uh, something that they're spending per year. I mean, that's that's an enormous amount of money that's close to the annual budget of uh, the World Health Organization. And they are very focused. It's mostly on uh, technology development and translating technology into uh, programs on the ground, although maybe not enough of the latter. And uh, there are clear targets. I mean, I've got several grants from the Gates Foundation, and uh, you're really very closely monitored uh, every three months and uh, uh, how, whether you've reached your uh, milestones, etc. What's been unusual, I think, Peter, from the Gates Foundation has been the fact that they've had the very strong strategy and that those who've wanted the money from them have needed to fit in with that strategy rather than the other way around and asking philanthropic organisations to fund what you know, the, the scientist or the NGO wants to do. But you raise a really important point about g- that global vision from a lot of what are essentially national, quite small national NGOs. And to be frank, quite small national scientific efforts in these areas which are not joined up. I mean, how many universities have got a strategy for global health, for example, in the UK? Very few. Uh, and the Gates Foundation is very mission-driven. And I think that some of the research, the big research questions of our time, need more of a mission-driven approach than um, a purely investigator-initiated one. And again, in my own field, uh, we still don't have an, H- an HIV, an AIDS vaccine. Still not. And the field is very, very uh, balkanized. And uh, this is an example where I think some um, mission-driven research could make a difference, not 100%. I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. We, we also need creativity, crazy ideas that can come up. So the art is often, what's the right balance? Yeah, I'm discovering after having left academia for about 12 years that strategic vision is uh, is not there at the institutional level. It is there at the level of groups, of research groups, of course. Just at the point we're starting to have a bit of a funding crisis in health, there's been, because of philanthropy and so on, this huge explosion in global health institutes, academics in the field. So I guess we're going to have a quite aggressive, competitive field going forwards as more and more people look for perhaps a diminishing volume of funds. Yeah, it's probably safe to say that the era of exponential growth of global health funding for both basic research, because there's been a lot of investment, let's say, for example, malaria research at a basic level was not that well funded before. Now it's well funded, but also uh, more public health oriented research. That area is coming to an end, although I'm optimistic that, for example, the the Gates Foundation, uh, I was a senior fellow at Gates uh, about a year ago, and uh, the, the commitment is there for a long time. The, the, the foundation is in there for the long haul. So that is one thing. But we also see that international development in some countries, like the UK, is protected for the time being, but not in other countries. And that also has an influence on global health research and work. Did they discuss flu at the meeting in Washington? This one, it wasn't really the particular issue, no. Although, interestingly, this week, the Health Protection Agency in the UK has just been having a two-day meeting looking at some of the lessons from the pandemic. And uh, later this week, the Pacific Health Summit, which, curiously given the name, is actually going to be in the UK and London, will also, amongst other things, be looking at that challenge. Well, this week's contribution from Science magazine chimes in nicely with what we've just been talking about. Over to Robert Frederick in Washington. Thanks, Clive. 
it might be surprising to hear that even though the 2009 H1N1 pandemic influenza strain is known broadly as swine flu, scientists haven't found exactly how it traces back to swine. But there's no doubt that pigs have it now. They apparently caught it from us. The additional finding that we observed was that the pandemic H1N1 virus reassorted with influenza viruses of pigs. Malik Perra studies the virology of influenza at the University of Hong Kong. And in a paper in the latest issue of Science, Paris and colleagues report the reassortment of pandemic H1N1 influenza virus in swine. And this is not very surprising, but the fact that this has occurred highlights the fact that we need to be on the alert and be watchful for such events because the pandemic virus might acquire changes of relevance to human public health in pigs. Indeed, the H1N1 pandemic strain got the name swine flu because, genetically, it appears to be derived from several other virus strains that had been circulating in swine before the outbreak. But yet the virus was isolated from a human, so it was a human influenza virus. Marie Grammer is a veterinary diagnostician who researches swine influenza viruses at the University of Minnesota and is not associated with the study. Influenza viruses reassort and they change all the time. And that's to be expected of a virus that's been around for over a thousand years. The influenza virus always changes. If it didn't change, it wouldn't be a successful virus and we wouldn't always have to continue to look for it and update vaccines and update tests and make new plans. And public health officials already have established a worldwide network of institutions and scientists, including study author Malik Paris, who look for influenza and its changes. But Paris says it often takes genetic tests to find influenza in pigs, because even the pigs that he and his team found to have pandemic H1N1 appeared to be healthy. The reassortant virus that we found in pigs also was isolated from a healthy pig. And we have also taken that virus and experimentally infected pigs. And uh, pigs infected with this reassorted virus also seemed quite normal to observation, although they were shedding the virus. And the only way we could see the effect of the infection is that the infected pigs had a slightly reduced weight gain. So these infections are broadly asymptomatic in pigs. Of course, the knowledge of this reassortment and transmission among pigs, which likely has been happening for hundreds if not thousands of years, does not increase the risk to human health. The knowledge just helps scientists better understand how to prepare and vaccinate. Again, Marie Grammer of the University of Minnesota. So there's no systematic surveillance, so we don't know where these viruses are. Well, let's get systematic surveillance in and let's approach it from a One Health type of response with human, animal, and environmental health professionals working together to do this type of surveillance. Because to put the burden of surveillance on one particular group, I don't think the surveillance will get done to the levels that the other groups would like it to be. Right now, though, that burden of surveillance is mostly carried by one particular group, the group whose primary focus is to look after the health of animals, which, like the pigs that Paris and his colleagues observed, appeared to be healthy even though they were infected with influenza. For Science Magazine, I'm Robert Frederick. You can hear more of our weekly podcast at sciencemag.org. Back to you, Clive. Thanks very much, Robert, and thanks to AAAS and Science. So, Peter, do you agree 
with the points made in that clip that the world needs a better genetic surveillance system for flu virus strains as they emerge? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, it shouldn't surprise us. After all, the uh, Homo sapiens, we're people, we're a part of the animal kingdom. And uh, when you think of it, of the new uh, infectious diseases that have emerged uh, from Ebola to um, spongioform encephalitis, mad cow disease, some salmonella infections, uh, they're all coming from other animals. And uh, there is a there is such a close symbiosis. And what is interesting is also it's not only the animals that give us infections, but we are also infecting animals. For example, study by Douglas Young of Imperial College in Ethiopia found that the cows there are infected with a, a tuberculosis strain that's a purely human strain and not the other way around. So we really need, uh, if we want to be ahead of the curve, we need surveillance also in animals and particularly those that we are living with, uh, literally. And as I understand it, surveillance in the uninfected population for swine flu wasn't undertaken except in a few circumstances where they had closed environments like Eton, where they found that actually most of the students were infected but had shown no symptoms. So it's exactly the same as in the animal. Right, indeed. <laughs> That's the case for many viral infections. I think it's striking, certainly, that in the, the whole hype and uh, research that went on to, to even this most recent pandemic and the earlier H5N1 uh, and so on, you didn't have nearly as much effort and resources going into animal surveillance, although, of course, they're an essential part of that whole mixing and reassortment process. Because the advantage, perhaps, of focusing on pigs is that, in many ways, they're more manageable and controllable and easy to survey than, for example, wild birds as a mechanism of distribution. Yeah. So it is, I think, an important area of focus for future monitoring and surveillance of emerging virus and other disease outbreaks. The weakness of animal health sciences in the UK is surely an issue here because how much could we load them a surveillance system onto that network? It's actually fairly stressed currently. And uh, although did very well with Blue Tongue, it was quite interesting to be interesting debate to see how much more they could do with the capacity they have. I think there's a global decline in animal health capacity, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And but I th I hope that uh, like the H five and one. Uh, epidemic um, will give a boost to, to animal health science. And, and also one of the other lessons is that we were all very focused on Southeast Asia and East Asia as the source of uh, infections. And, and there was quite a fair amount of surveillance in wild birds and, and, and chicken, chickens and so on. But then it comes from Mexico. And so it, it really needs, we need a, a global network. And And who knows what's going on in Africa where there's basically no surveillance except in cattle cattle but that's for purely economic reasons and and we could build on that because there are a number of veterinary research institutes uh, uh, working on cattle and, and they may be a good source uh, a base to build on well thanks very much i think we'll have to stop there we've had a lot of interesting ideas about how to strengthen global health capabilities in diseases from aids through tb to to flu so peter Diana, Andrew, and Robert in Washington, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.